some of you come from complicated family backgrounds. You know, complicated family backgrounds aren't native to modern-day America. They've been around for a while. Moses, the greatest prophet until Jesus, he had a pretty complicated family situation. Did you know that? He was born in Egypt. He was born a Hebrew in Egypt. What were the Hebrews in Egypt? They were slaves. So he was born into the home of slaves. Now, what happened was, as you know, the Egyptian ruling party was getting nervous because God blessed the Israelites, and so they were having children, lots and lots of children. And the Egyptians were getting nervous because what happens when you have lots and lots of children and you're the slave party? If you, Yeah, revolt can very easily start to happen. And so the biggest fear of the revolt, of course, would be military, them being able to rise up and, and gain arms and that type of thing. And so they decided to go on a campaign where they get rid of all the potential soldiers, which are the small baby boys. Can you imagine living in a place where they could just, the government could just decide, we're just going to take out all the babies, you know? Um, the, uh, the next step, of course, you know, is that Moses' mother, she is afraid for Moses' life. And so what does she do? She puts him in this basket. Think about this moment. Just feel it for a moment. She puts him in a basket, and she waterproofs the basket. And she carries her child with the basket to a river, places her infant child in a basket, seals it, puts it on a river, and watches it float away. This isn't a mother who's trying to neglect her child. This is a mother who loves her child. This isn't a mother who wants to get rid of her child. It's, it's a mother who's hoping that she can somehow save her child. And she has to put him in a basket and put him on a river and let him float away. We have difficulties in our lives, but man, you know, people before us have gone through some pretty difficult things. She watches Moses float away in a basket and sweet Miriam follows behind in the reeds and Lo and behold, who does Moses bump into but the princess of Egypt who's going out to bathe. And she hears something. She goes over and lifts the, the lid off the basket and finds a little Hebrew slave child and falls deeply in love with this little child. Her heart is instantly drawn. And Miriam pops out from behind the, the bushes and says, hey, I know someone who can take care of that child for you, a Hebrew mother who can, who can nurse that child for you. And so the princess says, yeah, I guess I'll need help. So she runs and gets Moses' mom. I mean, I don't know how long this took. My guess is it probably took a couple hours. The whole thing took a couple hours. Imagine the couple hours that Moses' mother had let go. She, was, she had to still be just weeping, you know? She had to just be completely weeping still. And yet... Here comes Miriam with Moses in her arms, you know. <laughs> Here, Mom, you know, the princess said that you should take care of her for the next couple of years, you know. And so she uh, nurses her, her son and takes care of him. But the pain's not over because then once the child's weaned, she has to take now this child who she's deeply bonded with, who's a toddler, and she has to take him back over to the palace of the slave driver's. And she has to walk him up by hand and hand him over to the ruling party and say, here you go. 
here's my prized possession, your son, you know? So Moses is raised in the palace of Pharaoh, who is uh, the oppressor. And so his mother and, and family, his birth family, are the slaves, and the family that he's actually raised in is the oppression, you know? And talk about an identity crisis for a young man. You know, as he grows up, I mean, he, he's just a, a tiny little child when the transfer is made, but the physical features and attributes must be clear. I mean, it's, it's obvious from the text that he knows that he's a Hebrew. And he grows up kind of an alien in Pharaoh's palace, and yet Moses was a talented young man, you know, and I'm sure that the blessing was on him and there was some interaction that was okay. I'm sure he was to one degree an outsider, but to another degree part of the family, you know. And here he would be in this terrible place as he grows up, goes through adolescence and goes through the teenage years, you know, and, and all of that trying to learn who he is and, and being torn in these two identities. Ultimately, he comes to manhood and he walks out one day and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating one of his native people, the Hebrews. And he looks, it says he looks around and he sees that no one is looking. And so he kills the slave driver. There was angst inside of Moses. There was turmoil inside of Moses. There was identity tension inside of Moses. He was angry. And and there was dissonance between his birth family and the family he was raised in. And he couldn't bring it to balance. And you could tell just from this simple action that there was something inside of him that was boiling up, that was frustrated, that he didn't know what to do with. And it was being torn. And the passion inside of him couldn't help it anymore. And he decides to do something. He kills a man. And it says he buries him in the sand. And then he heads for the hills. He heads for the desert. He runs away. When he runs away, he goes to Jethro, the Midianite priest, distant relative, not really a Hebrew, but a distant relative of his. And, uh, and it's funny. I mean, Moses goes from, I don't know if he had been trained in fighting or what, but first he, you know, kills the Egyptian. Then he, these women, daughters are being uh, attacked over by the over by the well, and he goes and fights them all off, gets them all away from the women. It was a great way to win his wife's affections. And so he, he, he defends all the women, and they, the, the women go back and tell their dad, hey, this Egyptian, they thought he was an Egyptian, you know, they, uh, they say this Egyptian came and defended us. And so he says, well, bring him home. And, it's, and the next sentence in the text, it's hilarious, the next sentence, he brought him home and he stayed with them, and Jethro gave him Zipporah as his wife. You know, that was quick, you know, (laughs) that was quick. Uh, And so uh, Zipporah, uh, Jethro's daughter, became his wife. And so now he starts a new family, third family, okay? And and this is a completely different group of people, the Midianites. And they're the shepherds out in the desert. And and they're much different kind of people altogether. And we don't know exactly who it is they worshipped. We're told that Jethro was a priest. The scriptures are very... Uh, they're not specific about that. We do know that in our text for today that Jethro praises God. Maybe he was still worshiping Jehovah. Maybe he wasn't. Maybe he was a polytheist. We don't know where he's at specifically. The scriptures don't give us all the details on that. But it's a completely different culture without a doubt, completely different group of people. And Moses stays there how many years? 40 years. 40 years. That's enough to establish an identity. 
you know, to feel like it's home. So he makes a new home, birth home Hebrews. Then he is an Egyptian, and now he's a Midianite. And his first child was, basically he names his first child, I lost my identity. I was driven from my home. And, uh, and then his second child, he said, but the Lord saved me. You know, that's how he names them. And so now here he is, and it's, it's really confusing. I mean, am I a Hebrew? Am I an Egyptian? Am I a Midianite? What am I? You know, but the beautiful thing that you find about Moses throughout this time is it, it starts to look like Moses doesn't identify himself in any of those categories. He begins to identify himself as a servant of God. That's what he begins to see himself as. And especially once the burning bush incident happens at the end of his 40 years and God begins to call him out and say, I have a plan for you. There's a reason why all this happened to you. I've uniquely positioned you. There's a reason why you were born Hebrew, raised Egyptian, lived out here in the desert with me in Midian. There's a reason for all of it. I have a plan for your life. This thing that would look like an identity crisis in a confusing family situation is now going to manifest in my plan. Isn't God awesome the way he redeems stuff? I mean, any of us can look at our lives and see what God has done with it. And if we're looking to see God throughout it, we can find the thread of God's work all through our lives in the situations that often seemed very confusing and and peculiar to us, you know, and even the things that created tension in our lives. We look back and realize that God was at work. So he sends them back. And now it gets, this is where it all gets confusing because the families are pretty much mutually exclusive, all three of them. They don't mix well. Obviously, the Hebrews and the Egyptians have a little bit of an issue, you know. Uh, There's going to be deep, deep, deep deep-seated tension between his Egyptian family and his Hebrew family. But as it turns out, his Midianite family doesn't really like the interaction with either of those. Obviously, they're not interested in the Egyptians. But even with the Hebrews and their God, we find an issue. On on Moses' way with Zipporah back to, to Egypt, there's an encounter where she has to actually circumcise her children in order to protect her husband. And she gets furious about it. And she's like, you're a husband of blood to me. You know, and you can tell she kind of, there's like a, a level of resentment that's happening because of who it is that she has to be connected to now with the Hebrews and the God of the Hebrews and what that's doing to her and to her family. You know, and so now there's tension. Three families, tension between all three of them, complicated situation and Moses job is to go with his one family to go and free his other family from his other family that's a complicated situation okay he has a complicated family situation and you know what happens I won't go into the details of what happens spectacular spectacular display of God's power and providence for the people who he loves in bringing them out of Egypt it's just an amazing thing an amazing thing so they come up out of Egypt and, and as the Israelites come up out of Egypt and they go out and they head toward the mountain that God calls them to where he's going to form his covenant with them, Mount Sinai, the Mount of God, where he's going to form his covenant with them, he sends Zipporah and his children to go get his father-in-law. And he says, bring Jethro back, you know? So Jethro comes and he comes to them and you heard George Ann read the passage and, and Jethro comes and meets them and he runs out and he, he kisses his feet, he brings them in, he hosts them, Dad-in-law is back. I don't know how long it's been. It doesn't tell us exactly how long it's been since Moses has seen him. But, you know, my guess is it's probably been a couple years. You know, it's not been 40 years or anything, you know, extensive. But it's, it's probably been a couple years. It's probably been a little bit since they've seen each other. And so 
Now Jethro comes back and it's, it's kind of a cool reunion. You know, you know that he and Jethro have, have grown together. They've spent 40 years working on the farm together, doing whatever it is they do together. Their hearts binded. They were the patriarchs of the family now, that type of thing. And they come back together and there's this wonderful reunion where they sit down at the table and get this. Here's the talk of the family. Jethro says, tell me what's been going on. I knew that God called you, but I want to hear what's been happening. Now, how would you like to sit in on this family discussion? Think about it. Think about what it is that Moses is telling Jethro that Jethro doesn't know about yet. He's been hearing something. Stuff's going on with these Hebrews, and somehow they got out of Egypt. What's been going on? And Moses sits down. And we're told that Moses is the most humble man that was on the face of the earth at the time. So you know Moses isn't tooting his own horn. The whole story, every ounce of this story is he's revealing the glory of God. And he's so humble that, have you ever heard, there's two ways of hearing stories of God. Sometimes people tell the stories and they're kind of like, they're telling the story about God, but they're kind of puffing themselves up a little bit too. And it's kind of hard to receive the story and be excited about it. But then there's the other time where you receive a story about God and what he's been doing and you just... It's like, it's all about God and you get really excited about it. And this is one of those moments where Moses sits down across the table from Jethro and he starts telling him, you're not, I don't, I have no idea how to tell you this. Dad, I have no idea how to tell you this in a way you're going to believe it. Because if I didn't see it with my own eyes, I have no idea if I could believe it. But there was a plague of flies. There was a plague of locusts. There was the, all the water turned to blood. The, their cattle just died. you wouldn't believe it. I mean, I put my hand into my coat and it came out. It was leprous. I put it back in. It was clean. I had a stick. I put it on the ground. It turned to a snake. I picked it back up. They did the same thing, but then God trumped them every time. You wouldn't believe it. I mean, Jethro, dad, it it was crazy. And And then there was the big moment where I kept going and I kept trying to tell him. I mean, you know, these are my friends that I grew up in the palace with. And I was trying to tell them, just let us go. You don't want to mess with God, you know? But they wouldn't listen and they kept changing their mind. You wouldn't believe what God did. I mean, the angel of death and Passover, he saved us all and he brought us out. And what's more is when they kicked us out, they gave us all their jewelry and all their goods. And they didn't just get rid of us. They gave us all their stuff because they were afraid of us. You wouldn't even believe it. And then they send us out and we're headed out to the desert and we're all just completely bewildered. We can't believe what God's doing. And then, you know, there's this pillar of fire that's just in front of us and it's guiding us. And we're like, this is crazy. You've got to be kidding me. It's actually happening. He's taking us out. And then we heard it. We heard it. We heard the horses. We heard the chariots. It was so scary. It was so scary. We turn around and you can see the dust. And you know about Egypt. You know about them. You know what they do to their enemies. And they came after us full force with their horses. But listen, Dad, you wouldn't believe it. This pillar of fire just went right around us, all the way around us until it was in between us and them. And it blocked them from getting to us. But you know what else it did? It blocked us from getting anywhere else. And we were pinned between the fire and the Red Sea. And we were like, it's only a matter of time. We can't stay here forever. What do we do? And I cried out to God. And I I said, you know, Dad, I, I just said, like, you brought me here. You brought me here. This has to be you. Look at everything you've done. You've got to provide a way for us. And he told me to stretch out my staff. And I got to be honest with you. I mean, I thought, like, what's the point of stretching out my staff at this point? And I stretched out my staff. 
And um, I just can't even tell you. It's so hard for me to even tell you this part. It's the most bizarre thing of it all. And I don't know how you can believe me, but honestly, I stretched out my staff and the Red Sea moved. It started to quiver. It started to move. And there was like a rippling. And then something happened. And it just started to push back. And it was like somebody pulled the drain in it or something. And the water just started to disappear. And the whole landscape around us looked different. And we didn't understand what was going on. And the water walled up on either side. It was like, it was like nothing. I, I have no idea how to explain this to you. And, and, and the water pushed up. And the ground, it was dry. It was like a desert. It was dry. And we walked through. And we're sitting here walking through the Red Sea. And we get to the other side. And we turn around and we look. And the pillar of fire is gone. And the Egyptians again are pursuing us. But at this time, it's just obvious. God's going to win today. You know, he's going to win. We know he's going to win. And our faith is growing. We're seeing things happen that we... We, we knew on one level God was this powerful, but we never actually imagined that we'd see his power. And then they come across and they're chasing us and we're just sitting there staring at them, not knowing what to do next. And all of a sudden, the walls of water collapse and it was over. There was turmoil for a second and water just flying up in turmoil. And then afterwards, nothing. Rest. So what's been going on with you, Jethro? <laughs> you know, um, Jethro, I, I, if, I'm, if I'm at that family gathering, I'm having a really hard time knowing what to believe and what not to. My faith, you know how it's like when you weren't there, it's hard to, to like actually feel what they're feeling when someone tells the story about something that happened. Sometimes it's hard. But Jethro got it. And he turns around and he's like, praise Yahweh. Praise Yahweh. We don't know exactly who he worshipped before then, but we know who he worshipped then. And he said, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all other gods. Because he has delivered you from the hand of your enemy. And he has brought you up out of Egypt. And it's this amazing moment, you know, phenomenal. And, uh, and so they have a feast and they have this wonderful celebration. Wow. It's awesome. Okay, all of that is the context <laughs> of what happens next. And the context is that, there ha- that Moses and his father-in-law are reunited, and they hear the stories and great celebration, and they're around Mount Sinai, and the people of Israel, the, the Hebrews are becoming the people of Israel. They're in the process of becoming the people of God, much in the same way that when... when it's really interesting. Moses leaves Egypt, goes out to the Midianites, meets with Jethro, and kind of finds out that he's not, it's not that he's a Hebrew, it's not that he's an Egyptian, it's not that he's a Midianite, it's that he's a child of God. And what you find is, is that now the Israelites, as a, as a nation, they come out of Egypt. And here they are at Mount Sinai, out in the desert, with Jethro again, actually, oddly enough. And they're beginning to learn that they're not Hebrew slaves, they're not Egyptians, they're not, they're children of God, you know? They're the, they're, the, they're the nation of God. And so it's really neat, and that's the process that's going on. Now, what happens is, is God's at Mount Sinai, God's in the process of giving them laws, instructing them, making covenant with them, teaching them how to be his people. That's what's going on. But 
That's a big process. These people have been under, under the governance of Egypt. They've known exactly how to live because the Egyptians made sure that they lived that way. But they have to learn how to live a completely different way now. That stuff doesn't change just overnight. Even when you've seen all those miraculous things, knowing how to live is a process of changing. And even if God just gives the Ten Commandments, there's some nuance to that. So what's it look like in this situation? Or in this situation? Or in this situation? And, you know, any of you who have had children know that the job of a parent is sometimes to help the kids figure out what's right and wrong in each situation. They, they don't have wisdom yet. You might be able to tell them the laws, but they don't have the wisdom as to figure out how to apply those laws in every situation in their life. And so when they're frustrated because things aren't fair, and this is happening and this happening, do the laws still apply here and how? And so what happens is, is every day, all the people who had any issues at all come to Moses. Now again, the scriptures, we don't know. There's a, di- there's a way that language is used around these things that don't tell us exactly what the numbers are. We have, basically, the, the scholars are, differ on the fact that the Israelites at that point were either 2 million or 200,000. Either way, if I'm Moses, I got a big job description. You know, settle the disputes of 200,000 people or settle the disputes of 2 million people. It almost doesn't matter at that point because you're not going to get to them all, you know. And so they bring all their stuff to Moses. And it says he sits in this chair and all day long, from the time he gets up till the time he goes to bed, he sits there and he helps them discern the will of God for their lives. He helps them resolve their disputes. And he sits as judge. Jethro sits there and he watches the whole thing. And he looks at it and he's like, this is crazy. There's no way this works. Now, it took Jethro to see this. You know why it took Jethro to see it? Because he wasn't in the other families. See, he had, he had his own vested interest. Um, Jen and I, we'd been seeing each other on and off for a long time. And then we had been off for about uh, seven, nine months, something like that. And um, I had a lot of stuff that had to be worked out. And God worked in me and changed me. And I've told you some of this story before. Um, but once he really brought inner healing to me and changed me uh, on the inside. Next time I saw Jen, I knew that I was capable of, through the power of God, to be able to love, you know? And so I wasn't afraid of diving into the relationship and I was really excited about it. But I, I realized I'm, there's no sense in, in seeing Jen again and getting back into a dating relationship. I, I, it's time for us to get married. So um, I went and talked to her parents and I hadn't seen them in about nine months. Uh, probably, no, longer than that. I hadn't seen them in about a year. I hadn't talked to Jen in like seven to nine months. And I went and had a conversation with them where I wanted to ask, you know, their blessing on us getting married, which was interesting, you know, because last they knew I was kind of off the radar. And so we show up and we're sitting around their kitchen table. They actually, Jen was over at the house earlier that day and she didn't know any, uh, anything about any of this. So they kind of like booted her out of the house. Uh, if you hear the story, it's pretty funny from her perspective. She was kind of like hurt because she was like, why are my parents kind of rushing me out of here? But I show up at the house and they're playing sequence, a board game. And uh, I sit down. This is when Jen's mom was still with us and we miss her dearly. She's with the Lord. Um, and, uh, and she has this spectacular personality. We, we sat down and for two hours, they made me squirm. Okay, I think they knew what was going on. And I kind of kept waiting for them to be like, okay, so what do you want to talk about? And they just were like, no, he's going to do everything from the beginning here. He's going to, they're, they're going to, and so um, we're playing the board game and eventually it was getting really late. And I'm like, well, I have to get going. So I have to initiate this. So I said, so anyway, they asked, they, we got done a board game, the, the one game, and they put all the stuff to the side and just kind of sat there and looked at me. And I'm like, okay, so anyway, can I talk to you about something? And, uh, and so I said, I, I, I'm, 
I'm interested in marrying Jen, and I, I would appreciate your blessing on that. You know, I, I'm asking for Jen's hand in marriage. And uh, her mom just instantly, almost before it was done, said, well, yes, of course, we've been wondering when. And her dad's like, hold up. <laughs> He's like, I have some questions to ask, you know. And uh, Jen's mom is great like that. You know, she always just kind of stated it, you know, jumped the gun. And, he, and, I, and I said, no, too late. She already said, you know. And, uh, and he said, he asked me a really important question. He said, Tim, um, and I told him about what all God had been doing in my life. And I said, I know that it's been kind of tumultuous for us. But I said, God's really changed me. I, I mean, he's fully, he, he's really done a healing work inside of me. And I know that, that I'm ready to enter into marriage at this point. And, you know, they knew me well enough to know the integrity around that. And they appreciated that. He said, you know, that's not my concern, Tim. My concern isn't whether or not um, that, that stuff inside is, is fixed. My, here's my biggest concern. He's like, you're going into ministry. And he's like, ministry is a dangerous, dangerous place. The demands of ministry are are huge. He's like, I'm not a pastor, but he's like, I've been an elder for a while now. And he's like, you know, I watch what happens to pastors. And I watch the demands of church. And I watch the unending need of things that happen at church. And he's like, there's a lot of people with a lot of needs and a lot of programs and a lot of everything and all the needs around it. And he's like, I need to know something. Jen's my daughter and I love her. And I need to know that when the, when the pressure gets cranked up at church in ministry, that you're going to love my daughter before you worry about church. And that when the pressure comes, that you're still going to take care of her. You know? And um, it was a perspective that a father-in-law has, you know? And I believe that Jethro came into this moment and he sees Moses from sunup to sundown judging for all of Israel. And he sees the massive demand. And he looks at Moses. And from his perspective, like, great wonderful. The Hebrews have their own nation and everything. Awesome. God's doing his thing. It's great. But from where he's standing, this is his daughter and his grandkids who are being neglected because all day long, Moses is taking care of the Israelites and he isn't fulfilling his job at home, you know? And so Jethro says, Moses, this isn't going to fly, you know? You got to figure something out. And so he says, come here, I'm going to help you out. And he gives the first organizational structure that was ever given to the people of God. He gives an organizational structure. Interestingly, God doesn't rebuke this. And interestingly, the organizational structure didn't come from the mouthpiece, from the mouth of God himself. It came through Jethro, who wasn't even an Israelite, you know, outside guy, you know, who comes in and just looks with wisdom for a second and says, this isn't going to fly. You can't sustain this. God continues to grow your nation and bless your nation, but he's going to kill your family unless you figure something out. And so he sets up this organizational structure. I have a, I have a great doctor, um, a family doctor over in, in uh, Roarsford, and uh, he does awesome work. He's one of these doctors. It, it just blows my mind how intuitive he is and how he figures out what's going on. He's really, really good. But I, I saw him like the first two times I ever went there. And ever since then, anytime I want to set up an appointment, I never get him. I always get someone else. And, and 
lately, that's gotten even more so. And they said, if you want an appointment with them, it either has to be really serious, like the other people can't get it figured out, or it has to be like three months out or something like that. I'm like, well, if I'm sick, I'm not waiting three months, you know? And they said, well, he became the medical director. And the reason is because he's in such demand that, you know, now he has his other staff kind of as the filtering system for him. And this is what Jethro tells Moses to do. He says, look, some of these laws, they're no-brainers, you know? You, there people who have a certain level of wisdom and a certain level of connection with God can really help others along without every one of these details having to come to you, you know? The law spells it out specifically enough that that doesn't need to happen. So he sets up these overseers over every 10 people has someone who they report, who, you know, kind of oversees them. And every 10 of them or every five of those overseers has someone over them. And they set up this whole organizational structure. It's a filtering system. And he said, the hardest cases come to you. And then he said, but this is what it'll really do. And, And this isn't just for the family. This also will help you. This will help your nation because now you'll be free to go and connect with God. Right now, you're spending all your time interacting with the people and you're not actually hanging out with God anymore. You know, you need to go in prayer and you need to study and you need to teach so the standard gets set of God's presence here and people understanding the scripture and understanding the law and then the judging will go a whole lot easier because people's minds will be changed. But someone needs to be the one who's connecting with God and connecting God to the people and doing that. And right now you're not doing that, but this will free you up. It's an organizational structure that allows him to do what it is that he's supposed to do. This is wisdom at work. This is Jethro, wisdom at work. Now, I just want to stop for a second and make the obvious comparison of some things that have been taking place at Parker Ford Church in the last few years. This message has two big applications. One of them is corporate for us as a church. One of them is individual for us as we follow God. The first one is corporate. And when I look at our, our church, I would love to have you sit down at a table across from me and my father in law as I share with him what's been happening at Parker Ford Church in the last two and a half years. Honestly, like when you're in the middle of it, sometimes you don't see it all. But as leaders in the church, we have gone and asked God for direction about things. And he has told us. I mean, he has clearly communicated direction to us. He has guided us and directed us to the place where I remember at one point, and I told you this about the building project, someone asked me something a night before. I pray about it that night and say, God, this person's asking a question. I need to hear an answer from you. The next morning, he revealed as crystal clear as God reveals anything to me ever through the scripture where he was guiding us. And over and over again, man, God has been communicating with us, guiding us. We've seen miraculous things taking place all over the place. I mean, we've seen healing and we've seen physical healing take place in people. But even deeper than physical healing, we've seen relationships that were fractured and broken that looked impossible to be restored come back together. We've seen people who are stuck in addictive lifestyles who can't get out of them be completely changed and in a way that when you look back, you're like, when and how did that happen? You know, and you just realize like stuff is taking place. What's more, man, we're starting a a youth group probably, it looks like in this, in the fall here with another church, another local church, who's also in a, in a spot where they need to have a youth group. And to think about the fact we have seen kingdom connections, the partnership between churches and um, on a leadership level that I've like, I, I thought it would take 10 years of interacting with other other pastors and leaders to build the level of trust that we've started to build with other pastors in the area. Awesome thing. What's more is the influence of the local church, man. I I don't know how many of you have told me stories about neighbors and coworkers and all sorts of things that God's doing because 
God is unlocking in many of us the gifts that he's put inside of us and the passions he's put inside of us. And we're seeing those things start to work and it's touching the lives of those around us. We're, ha- we're gonna have another worship Sunday in the fall at some point. And one of the things I wanna do for that is just let people tell the stories of how God has used them to touch the people around them. Because right now, honestly, if I, if I could take the time right now and just share the stories with you, you'd be amazed because a lot of the stories aren't what's happening here. It's what's happening from the people here as God's doing things beyond us. Uh, One person, I mean, they're seeing almost a full-on revival take place at their workplace because people just come up to them right now and ask them to tell them about the Lord. And and they they listen, all the people at their workplace listen to these messages online, you know, and and then they start asking the person uh, to, to talk to them about them. It's awesome the stuff that God's doing. And when I look back and recount it, it's amazing. And one of the most amazing things of it all is that as God's doing this, you'd think that our lives would get cleaner and cleaner, but it's not what's happening. What's happening is, is all the dirt that we've hidden is rising to the surface, you know? And people's lives are revealing the junk that's inside of them. And one of the things that I, um, a, a few months ago, actually it was almost a year ago, that I really sensed God saying through the scriptures to me was that I am gonna build in you at Parker Ford Church a foundation of righteousness. I'm gonna build in each of you a foundation of righteousness. And what that takes is it's the refining fire, you know? And it's like, I just feel like as God's spirit has been moving and bubbling, what rises to the surface is our sin and our baggage and our junk, you know? And so that's a good thing because then you can skim it off and he can remove it and be cleansing us. But let me tell you what that means. It means that we are at Mach 10 speed sometimes. And it means that God's blessing is hard to keep up with. And it means that our baggage that comes out is also very hard to keep up with. Man, you guys are messed up. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, kind of. And... Um, we, we have to, like, keeping up with God and what he's doing in our lives is a very difficult thing, you know? And it's an amazing thing, and yet it's very consuming. And, uh, and Josh and I have found ourselves very often in situations like Moses, all day, every day, completely, all the time, you know? And inside the church, it's gangbusters. God's moving, and it's wonderful. And when there's a mentoring figure in one of our lives who's seeing it from the outside, they're like, you guys are nuts. You got to figure something out. You know, the the senior pastor at the church I was previously at, I had a conversation with him and he was asking about my life and he's like, Tim, figure something out. It's not sustainable. Your family will pay, you know? And, uh, and I know that. And um, we, it was funny, Jen and I, when we came here, we said for the first two to three years, we know it's going to be absolutely nuts. And then we're going to expect that God's going to do some transitioning in how things work and get it to a place where it's a little more sustainable and healthy, you know? Um, and we see that that's what God's doing right now. One of the biggest things we're praying about on the elder team is about organizational structure and how to structure in such a way that we can we can continue to move with what it is that God's doing. Uh, Jesus says it like this. He says, no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Because if you pour the new wine into the old wineskins, the old wineskins will burst. The old wineskins are rugged and hard, you know? And the wine, when you pour the grape juice in there and it turns to wine, it expands. And when it expands, the, the old crusty leather can't expand with it and it'll burst and the wine will go flowing out, you know? But if you have new fresh leather, it can expand with it, you know? And so the same thing, if there's the way we structure as an organization needs to be able to expand with what it is that God's doing. And that's what Jethro was trying to tell 
Moses. He's saying, if God's going to continue to bless you, it's great, but you can't be the one to take care of all this. And that's what's happening is we have great organizational structure here at the church. We have deacons who do things. We have trustees who do things. We have a prayer coordinator, hospitality facilitator, people who take care of different aspects of what happens here. But there's a whole nother level, and it's called fractaling, which I won't get into, but it's basically, you ever seen a stalk of broccoli? If you take off a piece of the broccoli and you look at it and you compare it to the big stalk, they basically look the same. It's just one's like a little microcosm of the other, you know, because when it, when it branches off, it's not, it doesn't branch off different. It kind of reproduces itself again. And that's a different kind of organizational structure. It's not like over here are the people who take care of this and over here are the people who take care of this. This is Jesus' organizational structure where he makes disciples who look like him. And when he puts them out there, they can help connect people to him. So in an organization, business-wise, there's different parts of the business that, that, you know, you take care of. These people take care of the building. These people take care of waiting the tables. These people take care of this and that. But then there's the, the disciple-making, where we spread the ability to connect people with God. Um, and, and so we're working at figuring out at Parker Ford Church what that looks like for us, having people who can help bring other people along. Because that's really where the beauty of what the church is about. We're we're disciple makers, right? That's what we are. People following Christ, trying to grow closer to him. But as God brings more people, and as the discipleship process continues and people's lives change, we have to have more disciple makers. Therefore, there needs to be more replication of the kind of leadership that's discipling people. You'll hear us in the fall talking more about that. That's the corporate application to this thing. Now, I want to take a minute and tell you about a personal application to this. Have you ever tried to do something in your life and implement something? And it was wisdom and it made sense and you know it was the right thing, but you just couldn't quite sustain it. I remember there's been times where I've been driving real hard in my life trying to get stuff done. And the next day, I know I have a lot that has to get done. And I'll plan it out almost every 15 minutes, you know? Like, I got to do this, then this, then this, then this, then this, you know? And I'll get up the next day and I'll start going after it. And then I'll get to a spot where it's like, okay, this is the time where I'm going to prep my sermon, you know? And I'll sit down and I'll be like, all right, God, Hit me with it, you know, and I'll read it, you know, and it doesn't work that way. As a matter of fact, I'm like, boom, like I'm like trying not to fall asleep because I'm going so hard after it that I can't sustain the good idea. I'm not there yet. Like I'm not, sometimes there's good ideas that are even like godly ideas and yet you can't fully sustain them yet because you're not at the place where you can handle it. Sometimes it's that we're praying for someone. We're praying for a loved one and we're caring for them and we're saying, God, please like help them to take the next step in their faith. And and you watch them, and you're like, I, they're making decisions that don't fit with what I'm praying. And inside, I'm tempted to kind of really get frustrated with them, you know, because come on, take the next step. And I almost, I almost want to twist their arm a little bit. And it's only because I love them, and I want things to go well. And, and yet, they're not really there yet, you know, and they can't do that yet. And I have to wait. And that's a frustrating thing. This is kind of what happens with this whole thing with Jethro. See, what happens is he gives this organizational structure to Moses, And they put the thing in place, but Numbers chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 2, like, it's amazing. They show this other thing that happens where it doesn't actually work and that they're still really struggling. And yet God has this special moment. And this is how it goes. I'll tell you, um, I'm going to read it to you, actually. In uh, Well, (laughs) time-wise, we're just about wrapping up here. I'll tell it to you. Um, They get frustrated because all they have is this manna. And God provides miraculously for them. But like us, you know, it's never quite enough. You know, we're really impatient. And 
they were frustrated. And I have this, I have this theory that the reason they didn't like the manna is because there wasn't enough protein in it. And they were, started seeing themselves lose muscle mass. And they were afraid that, you know, when the enemies came to attack them, they were going to be too weak. And because uh, they were living, it's like living on rice, you know, and they, they're like, it's not enough. Like I need more and God's sustaining them. But I have a feeling there was some, the taste wasn't good enough for them. But I also have a feeling they wanted, they kept saying they wanted meat and they wanted protein, you know. And, uh, and so anyway, they, they, uh, they, they complain about it and God gets really frustrated with them. But he says that he's going to provide for them. And he says he's going to give it to them. But you watch Moses and it's really funny what Moses says in, in Numbers chapter 11 He's like, he's had it. Like Moses is just totally had it. He's burnt out just like Jethro said he would be. Like, because it hasn't worked yet. You know, it hasn't taken place. It hasn't worked. And he's frustrated. He's burnt out. He can't handle these people's complaints. He's totally spent. And he's like, God, just kill me now. That's what he says. He's like, just kill me now, God. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And God's like, I'm going to give them the meat. And he's like, how in the world can you provide them with the meat? And I love this question that he asked God. He says, do you know how many of them there are? <laughs> love that. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, and he's like, even if we get the meat, how could we feed them all with the meat? There's too many people. The administration still isn't working the way it needs to work, is what Moses is saying. And I will read this. This is in Numbers chapter 11, starting in verse 23. It's priceless what God says back to him. It says, the Lord answered Moses, is the Lord's arm too short? (laughs) That's dangerously close to what he said to Job, you know? Like it's, but but he doesn't get quite the smack that Job did. You will now see whether or not what I say will come true for you. God's taking pity on Moses. He understands the brokenness of the situation, the inability for Moses to really care for all these people. God understands. And even with the wisdom of Jethro, it hasn't worked out yet. And now, while his father-in-law gave him a good idea and they worked at it, his true father is going to really help him out. He's about to help him out. So Moses went out and told the people what the Lord had said. He brought together 70 of their elders. This is the organizational structure. He brought together 70 of the elders and had them stand around the tent. This is the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. Then the Lord came down in a cloud and spoke with him. And he took of the spirit that was on him and put the spirit on the 70 elders. And when the spirit rested on them, they prophesied. But they did not do so again. However, two men whose names were Ildad and Medad, (laughs) there's a lot of jokes to be had there, had remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Now, I want to stop there for just a second. We're going to read the rest of that, but I want to stop for just a second and say, they were listed among the elders, but didn't go to the meeting. The scriptures don't tell us why, but there's the the context gives gives us a real good indicator as to why. And the indicator is this, is that, these guys appear to be rebellious. It appears to be that the reason they're not showing up is because they're the ones who want meat and they're the ones who are partially leading this whole problem and they're part of the elder team. But they, and every organization I've ever been a part of, every church I've ever been a part of, every anything, there's always like the cantankerous side of it, you know? There's always the, 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 the dissenting voice that's just like frustrating and can't have faith or depend. And, and that's okay, you know? It's part of who we are. But these guys, they're like, we're not going to that meeting. We're staying right here. 
They can talk about whatever they want, but we're sick of listening to Moses because all we're doing, you know, and that's kind of the feeling you get, and, uh, and you'll see why, okay? So here they are, and they didn't show up at the meeting. Uh, they remained in the camp. They were listed among the elders, but did not go out to the tent. Yet the Spirit also rested on them, and they prophesied in the camp. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. Joshua, son of Nun, you know him, right? who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. Why would he want Moses to stop them? Well, because if they're the dissenting voice, now all of a sudden, people are already grumbling against Moses. The dissenting voice is over here, and now they look empowered by God, and all the elders over here who are having this amazing experience, like a Pentecost moment, The people aren't seeing that. The only thing they're seeing is these two rebellious people back in the camp who are getting the Spirit of God. Now everyone's going to look at them and say, well, they're as powerful as Moses, and they're the ones saying Moses is messed up. Maybe we should start following them. And Joshua, the whole time, is looking at this, being like, Moses, you got to stop them. And Moses, Moses, this is is priceless. It's absolutely perfect. But Moses replied, are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Then Moses and the elders of Israel returned to the camp. You see what's happening? Is Joshua still depends on the leadership of Moses, but Moses is trying to get everyone to depend on the leadership of God. This is what makes Moses such an amazing leader. See, Moses, Joshua is saying, if the Spirit of God goes and meets with them, then people are going to start trusting them. And Moses is like, I want the Spirit of God to go on everyone so that they all trust him. Because Moses isn't interested in being a leader. He never has been. He's interested in being submissive to God. He's interested in leading people to connection with God. And what happens is this amazing moment where Jethro gives a good idea, but the timing isn't quite perfect, you know, and it can't work out. But then there's the moment with God when God's ready. And how does God empower the elders? He doesn't just give them a position. He gives them his spirit. And this is how it works in the kingdom of God. This is a, it's it's like a prophetic picture of what's going to happen in Acts chapter 2. When they're all sitting there in the upper room and they're praying and the Holy Spirit falls and and he fills up. And Jesus had made an organizational structure. He had discipled them all. But then they still can't handle it. Peter knows he can't handle it. He, He tells Jesus, even when Jesus is asking him, do you love me? Feed my sheep. And Peter knows I can't handle it. But then the Holy Spirit comes and empowers them and they're able to accomplish what it is that God wants. This is the wine and the wineskin, okay? And so God, through the wisdom of Jethro, puts together a wineskin, but through the power of his spirit, gives them the wine necessary in order to accomplish what is needed. Now, here's the personal application. Some of us, some of us struggle because we get into a position in our lives where we work very, very hard to get things done. Self-motivated people, disciplined. I want to just get, if I just get my budget together, I can get us where we need to be. If I just get my spiritual disciplines where they need to be, we'll be in a good place. If, if I come over here and, you know, I just get my family life such and such, if I get my calendar figured out, my time the way it needs to be at work, if I just put in enough time, I'll build my career and get things where they need to be. And, and it's all dependent on me. And we work really hard at getting the system set up. And we completely forget that what we actually need is the power of the living 
using God in order to make things work in our life, that we're completely incapable of it. On the other hand, there's some of us over here who are like, you know what? I'd love to tithe, but um, I'm just not really there yet. And God's going to have to get me to a place of abundance where I can do that. I'd love to be spiritually disciplined, but I don't feel like I have what it takes. So I'm going to kind of kick back and wait for God to change stuff in my life to get me to the place where I can do that. Also, not okay. One would be if Moses stayed here and didn't do anything, didn't put a wineskin in place and didn't do anything to try to pursue the next level of it with God, that's not okay. We have to be faithful servants doing everything we can to be ready for what God's going to do. But we always have to recognize that it necessitates God's spirit and God's power. For us at a church, here at church, that means we work on organizational structure. It means we work at putting programs in place. It means we work at doing all of that stuff. But we never believe that that's actually what gets it done. We just believe that that's a container that God fills up with his spirit, which is actually what gets things done. And it's the same thing in our lives. It's the same things when we're praying for a loved one. It's the same thing when we're trying to move forward in our own spiritual life. There's my responsibility. This is all about one thing. It's humble submission to God. It's humbly submitting and saying, even though I know this thing isn't going to be the whole picture, I'm still going to be faithful and do what it is I'm supposed to do. And I'm still humble enough to know that that's not going to do it, and I'm going to be on my knees begging God for his spirit to move. Because what we desperately need, more than anything else, is for the spirit to move inside of us. But when he does, we hope and we pray that we will have done things the way we need to, so that the water doesn't, the new wine doesn't break the wineskin and spill out everywhere. But instead, God can continue to flow and move and bring revival to our land. Amen?